Well, good evening, everyone. Nice to be here with you. Be good, helpful to keep that passage open in your Bibles or on your devices. And let's pray that God would help us to see how it applies to us and our lives. Our dear Heavenly Father, we do pray you give us insight, spiritual insight into your Word. Help us to believe what we need to believe and apply what we need to apply. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as human beings, we tend to like things being fair. We like fair pay at work. We like fair play in sport. We think it's good that people get what they deserve. We think that people should be selected for things and promoted based on merit. A meritocracy, we think, is a good thing. And as such, we don't like it when we see things that are not fair. Perhaps cheating in elections or cheating in the workplace, or even cheating in sport. Uh, as you may would, I'm sure you would know, it's not an easy thing to run a marathon. That's 42 kilometres, people train very hard to go in marathons, and it's a great achievement if you can actually manage to run one. Well, in 2010, Kyle Strode, a 46-year-old chemistry professor from Montana in the United States, ran the Missoula Marathon. And he ran it in two hours, 47 minutes, which is a pretty good time for someone over the age of 40, let alone anyone else. And he came first in the master's category. That's the over 40 age group for that particular marathon. The gentleman who came second in the master's category was a guy called Kip Litton. He was a dentist from Michigan. But here was the interesting thing. The guy who came in third could not recall seeing Kip Litton, the guy who apparently came second, anywhere out on the course. I mean, he'd been there at the start, uh, there was a record saying that he'd been at the, there at the halfway point, but no one could remember seeing him out on the course until near the end. Now, the guy who finished first, uh, Professor Kyle Strode, obviously had a lot of time on his hands, nothing else to do, so he thought he'd look into it. So he went to the website for the particular marathon and saw, yes, there's the halfway split time for this guy who allegedly came second, but he looked through all the photographs uh, for the event, and there were photographs of most people, you know, numbers of times, but there were no photographs of this Kip Litton gentleman. And Kyle Strode really had time on his hands because then he started to follow Kip and look at his results in other marathons he'd run or allegedly run around the United States. And the pattern, as I understand it, which seemed to emerge was that he'd be there at the start, he'd be there at the finish, but there'd be no photographs of him anywhere in the middle. Well, I, I think sometimes timing chips suggested that he had been, somehow. And then he looked at Kip Litton's personal website and discovered that he'd recorded all the results for his alleged marathons. And in there were three marathons which didn't even exist, which he'd recorded his times for and invented whole, you know, lists of names of other people who'd, who'd apparently run with him. To cut a long story short, and this ended up in the New Yorker magazine in the United States, he, this Kip Litton gentleman seemed to have cheated an awful lot. They're not quite sure how he pulled it off, but he did. And people like Kip Litton, I think, annoyed people a bit. Why? Because he cheated. He'd gotten credit that he didn't deserve. It wasn't fair play. And so that annoyed many people. Now this evening we're going to consider something rather which in one sense isn't fair but it's really generous and we absolutely need it because this evening we're going to be thinking about the grace of God, we're going to be entering into the realms of grace and it's important that we understand the principle of grace and particularly God's grace 
because our salvation is based on grace and then our Christian living should reflect the joy of grace as we show grace to others. So, as many of you would know, we're continuing our series in Matthew this term. We've arrived at Matthew chapter 20. We're looking at verses 1 to 16, which were just read for us. Uh, I've called tonight the unfairness, in inverted commas, of grace. Hopefully you've got the handout. And I want to think firstly about the generous recruitment in verses 1 to 7, then the generous payment in verses 8 to 16, and then reflect for a few minutes on God's grace. And I'm going to suggest at the end that God's grace, which may seem unfair, actually is fair, although entirely undeserved. So, let's look at this particular story or this parable which Jesus tells and it's set in a very familiar Jewish first century scene, it's in a Jewish village, Uh, it's at the time of the grape harvest, there's a need to get the grapes in really quickly Uh, and so the story starts, the generous recruitment, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Now, it's often said that getting up early in the morning makes you more productive. There are people who have written on this and I'm sure there are studies on it as well. If you get up early, you get started on things early. You can plan for the day and people often say that they think more creatively and more with greater focus in the early morning hours. And many notable people have gotten up early. Uh, And so, Oprah, if you remember her, she used to get up at 6.02 every day for reflection. But even better than that is the CEO of Apple products, Tim Cook. He says he rises at 3.45am to read his emails, that's pretty early. But there's even better than that because actor Mark Wahlberg, if you've ever seen Daddy's Home 1 or 2, he's in that, he apparently gets up at 2.30am to exercise, play golf, pray and spend time in a cryo chamber. That's one of these things which is really cold but it's apparently good for you. Anyway, that's him. So, motivated people often get up very early. Now, there are some motivated early risers in this parable. There's, of course, the landowner who's got up early to get down to the marketplace at daybreak to look for people to employ. And, of course, there's the group of people who are there. They're the early risers. They're in the marketplace, keen beans, looking for work. And they are the first group of workers hired. And then we read in verse 2 that the landowner agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Now, a denarius for a day labour in the first century was apparently the going rate, it was fair, it was reasonable, it was enough to, I think, pay for your food, etc, etc. So, it was fair pay. Now, there was a 19th century uh, British uh, philosopher by the name of Thomas Carlyle who famously wrote, a fair day's wages for a fair day's work. And that is what these guys who were hired first we're going to get. But there was clearly a lot of harvesting to do because the landowner's back in the marketplace three hours later looking for more workers. And we read in verse 3, at about nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. Now, why were these guys in the marketplace at 9am? Why weren't they there at six? Well, perhaps... Uh, they'd either slept, perhaps they were slightly less keen beanish as the 6am guys who were there, or perhaps they just hadn't been picked up in the initial uh, hiring of people at 6am. Anyway, they're hired three hours later and they get to work. But there's obviously an awful lot of work in the vineyard because the landowner goes back to the marketplace at noon, at 3pm and then at 5pm, which is sometimes referred to as the 11th hour, and hires more people. 
And you might think, goodness, why were there still people there in the marketplace at five in the afternoon, at the 11th hour? What's going on there? Well, the landowner asks them why they're there and they say in verse 7, because no one has hired us. Now, some of you guys are at schools, I'm sure all of you who aren't at school remember being at school and you're probably familiar with the idea of picking teams for sport. You've got two captains, you've got a group of school students and the captain says, I'll have that person, I'll have that person. You go through it and as people are being picked, um, if you're near the end and you haven't been picked until the last one or two or perhaps even the last one, you become aware that at least as far as that sport goes, um, you're not really wanted. I mean, if when I was at school, if they'd been picking teams for ice skating, I think I would have been the last person picked. So the people who are picked last, you know, they're the ones who weren't really picked up first, obviously. So the people in the marketplace at 5pm would have been like that. They were the ones that no one really wanted. No one really wanted to hire them. Yet, for this particular landowner, who's a very unusually generous person, the unwanted are wanted. So again, the unwanted are wanted. Now, of course, this is a parable and the landowner represents God and he's choosing people for service in his kingdom. And there are a couple of things we could note briefly. The, it's the landowner in the parable who is out choosing people for service. He hasn't sent along some foreman, he's doing it personally. The landowner is personally involved with those who are in his, king, in his vineyard, the same way that we should perceive God. God is not some distant divinity who sends others to do his bidding for him, he is proximate, he is personal, he is involved with us. And the second thing, we see that the landowner is even concerned with the unwanted. And God, of course, is concerned with everyone, the so-called wanted and the so-called unwanted, although I don't really like that term. God uh, chooses, and the landowner chooses, not just the motivated early rising go-getters, but he also chooses the 11th hour outcasts as well. And so I think it's good to remember that God and the Son of God doesn't assess people the way we do. God is concerned with everyone, the in crowd and the out crowd, the popular, the unpopular, the rich, the poor, the influential, the not influential, whoever. Uh, and his attitude is summed up elsewhere in the Scriptures where we read that the Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and save the lost. So I guess that has two uh, helpful applications. I wonder whether you ever feel like you are on the outer, that you're one of the last picked in life, so to speak, that you're not in the mainstream. Well, the message of the Bible is that Jesus cares about you just as much as He cares about Taylor Swift or as much as He cares about the Prime Minister or, or um, whoever. And the second thing, it begs the question of how we view others. You see, God seems to view everyone equally, He's concerned about everyone. How do we view other people? Are we influenced by their success, their looks, their influence or, 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 or not? Do we disregard those who seem less important, less powerful, less in crowd or whatever? Uh, God views everyone as important, uh, we should as well. I read a, a book a few years ago called Boy Swallows Universe, some of you may have read it, it was by an Australian author, it was set in 1980s Brisbane and the characters in it you might say were all characters from Struggle Street, they were on the wrong side of the tracks, uh, they were perhaps uh, the outcasts of society, some people might refer to some of them as white trash, which I think is a horrible term, but it's, it was depicting those sorts of people. And it was a story which showed great compassion, I thought, for all these characters, and I think reading it did me good, because it gave me compassion for them as well. Well, God doesn't need to read Boy Swallow's Universe to feel compassion 
for the 11th hour employees. He feels compassion and concern for everyone, no matter who they are and no matter who you are. Generous recruitment. Let's return to the parable. Verses 8 to 16, we get to the generous payment. So, verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired at five in the afternoon, that's the 11th hour, uh, came and each received a denarius. Now, that's significant because that is an extremely generous payment. They have received a day's wages for one hour's work. A full day's wages for one hour's work. Now, the level of generosity there is extraordinary in the context. Some might even say it's a bit mentally unhinged. I wonder whether you've ever encountered something which was stupidly generous. We just thought that's just ridiculous. Uh, something I always think back to, which many of you won't be able to, but I'll tell you about it, which is good. It's a 1970s TV commercial. It was for a clothing store called the House of London. And as I recall, the ad for the House of London products sort of went like this. The ads would say, how much would you expect to pay for this magnificent three-piece suit? Would you expect to pay $200? No. $100? No. $50 at House of London. But with this three-piece suit for $50, you also get an extra pair of pants, five shirts, five ties, cufflinks, and this new set of shoes, all for only $50 at House of London. And I would watch this ad as a 10-year-old, and my 10-year-old brain is thinking, how do they do that? It's incredible. It's just unhinged. You got so much more than you deserve. There must have been a trick. I don't know what it was. Uh, but anyway, it just seemed to be overwhelmingly generous. Point is, a day's wages for an hour's work is overwhelmingly generous. Back to the story. Now, at this point, the other workers' minds would have been ticking over. Wow, they get a denarius for an hour. We've worked for three hours, six hours, nine hours, 12 hours. What on earth are we going to get? But they're in for a bit of a surprise. Reading from partway through 10. Each of, each of you, each of them, also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Now, why were they grumbling? Well, they thought, oh, that's not fair, right? Um, they were the ones who'd laboured longest and hardest through the heat of the day, and uh, they got no, no more than those who'd worked for one hour in the cool of the evening. And if that happened to us, we'd probably grumble too, wouldn't we? But then reflect on it for a moment, why? Are we grumbling? Now, the landowner explains his approach in verse 13. He said, look, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? And that's, of course, what happened. The earliest workers said, we want work. The guy says, I'll give you a fair day's wage for a fair day's work. They think, great, let's go and do it. And they all get their denarius. They get a fair day's wage for a fair day's work. Uh, the landowner has been entirely fair. But he's also been extremely generous to some people as well. And he says in verse 15, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money or are you envious because I am generous? I think the answer is pretty obvious. Now, can I say that with us, even if we get what we deserve, we can sometimes get a little bit put out if others get more than what we think they deserve. So you might bring home a fair day's wage at the end of your shift or at the end of your, day, end of your working week 
And you read in the press about big corporate fat cats paying themselves massive bonuses which they don't deserve, and you feel just a little bit narked by the whole thing. They don't deserve that, you know? You're looking at them and you're feeling a bit put out. The point being made here is that God is like the landowner, he is fair, and like the landowner, he's also very generous. Now let's um, move into the unnerving area of grace and think thirdly about the grace of God here. Because God's thinking here is utterly at odds with the world's. Uh, God's thinking turns human thinking upside down, or perhaps I should say the right way up. You see, getting into and living in the Kingdom of God is all about grace and not merit. Remember, grace is an undeserved gift, getting what we don't deserve. Whereas merit is sort of when you get what you do deserve. Now, when it gets, comes to getting into the Kingdom of God, to getting saved, to becoming a Christian, to being adopted into God's family, to receiving the promise of heaven, we don't want to get what we deserve. Because if we got what we deserved, we wouldn't get any of those things. We don't deserve any of it. But what we do get is God's grace. If we've repented of our sins and we're seeking to follow Jesus, God in His grace promises all, us all those things which we don't deserve. He gives us what we don't deserve in His grace, rather than what we reserve, deserve. Now, who do you think Jesus is telling this parable here for? Uh, clearly, the early rising employees had the wrong attitude. I think it could be said that they're looking sideways at others, rather than looking upwards in gratitude to God. Now, who do, they, who do they represent? Couldn't Jesus be telling this parable for the Pharisees? The Pharisees uh, and other religious leaders of the day might think, oh, we're really religious, we deserve God's favour, not the great unwashed masses out there. Is it told for them? Maybe. Is it told for the Jewish people, who they thought, we've been chosen by God, we deserve God's favour, those Gentiles out there don't. Could it be told for perhaps Jesus' disciples? Maybe Jesus' disciples have started thinking, look, yeah, we're in this for the long haul, we're doing the hard yards with Jesus, unlike these fly-by-nighters who've just sort of latched onto our group, they shouldn't be blessed as much as we are. Perhaps it was. But perhaps uh, the parable was also told for all of us as well. Now, here's a question, when the parable was being told and you sort of twigged as to what it was talking about, um, which of the workers did you identify with? Which did you sort of think, oh, that's me? Okay. Did you identify with the early risers? Because you've been a Christian for a while, for five years, for 25 years, for 55 years, you've been labouring long and hard for the Lord in Christian ministry, which quite frankly is sometimes pretty hard. You've been giving up your free time, you've sometimes faced criticism, sometimes you feel you haven't been given the appreciation and thanks that you feel is warranted, you've performed tasks for people who have been difficult, some whose lives are in a mess, perhaps you've even faced persecution and you think, boy, I've really put in the hard yards for God, and there's some lightweight Christian over there who seems to be being blessed by God. Doesn't seem fair, I'm feeling a bit put out by this, right? You're looking sideways in comparison rather than upwards uh, to God. Or to give a more extreme example, perhaps you've lived your entire life, you're in your 80s, you've served God diligently all your life and you hear of some grumpy old man who on his deathbed gives his life to Christ and you learn that he's going to receive the same blessings from God as you are, who's done 60 years of hard service and you think, doesn't seem a bit fair. Once again, you're looking sideways, comparatively, rather than upwards with gratitude to God. 
You see, are you looking sideways such that you're a, a bit of a grumbler, like the early risers in this story? Or like the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son? Or perhaps you sort of look at the thief on the cross uh, who gave his life to Jesus in his dying hours and you think, doesn't seem really fair, I've done a lot more than that thief on the cross did. Uh, the question is, do we resent God's grace to others? We need to look upwards with gratitude to God, not sideways. But here's another thought as well. If you're resenting someone who hasn't really put in the hard yards, consider the following story. Just say you've been praying for your dear old dad for years, maybe he was a slightly grumpy old man, I don't know, uh, and in his last dying hours, he gives his life to Jesus. And you learn that your dear old dad is going to be just as blessed by God as you are, who's lived a lifelong Christian life when you get to heaven. You're going to feel resentful? No, you're going to be thrilled because your dad is there. Why? Because you love him, right? And I think the point here is that everyone in the world is your dad, in the sense that God views them just as valuable, just as important as you might view your father. See, God loved the whole world that he gave his only son. So, there's a thought. Now, um, so, if uh, we're identifying with the early risers, we need to be careful that we don't look sideways at others in resentment rather than upwards to God with gratitude. But could I suggest that probably, I think it's best to view all of us as the 11th hour employees, the guys who were employed at 5pm in the afternoon and got ridiculously over-blessed by the landowner. Because all of us, if we're saved by grace, if we've asked Jesus to forgive us and we're following Him, we've been blessed to a ridiculous House of London on steroids uh, level. We've been forgiven for our wrongdoings, uh, we receive adoption into God's family, we look forward to eternal life, we have peace, we have power, we have purpose, we have joy, we have hope, all of these things as Christians, sure we still suffer and we might face persecution as well, but God has shown incredible grace to us. The question is, do we look upwards to God and appreciate the grace that has been shown to us? And I think that's a key thing. Billy Graham, Corrie Ten Boom, um, C.S. Lewis, John Stott, there they all are, all of them were really 11th hour employees, they were blessed far beyond what they deserved, despite the fact that they did great things for God. And it's same for us as well. So I think we need to see us, all of us as, as 11th hour employees, keep the joy of grace and thus show grace to others, uh, not look at them with resentment. Let me conclude. Uh, God's grace and generosity may not seem fair. And on one level, it's not fair, it's grace, it's hyper-generosity. But on another level, it is fair, uh, because all our wrongdoings have been taken and paid for by Jesus in His death on the cross. Justice has been done, we've received the benefits, benefits of it, and that whole process is fair. So, it is fair, but it's just overwhelmingly generous and overwhelmingly gracious. But that's what God is like, God is a God of grace, and as Christians, we live and dwell in the realms of grace. So, big idea, Kingdom of God is all about grace, not merit. So, let's reflect on the fact that if we're followers of Jesus, thanks to God, we've received abundant grace, let's keep the joy of grace and let's show grace to others. Let me pray for us. Our dear Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would realise that as followers of You, we live in the realms of grace and that we have received so much more than we deserve. 
thanks to the work of Jesus for us on the cross. Lord, help us to keep the joy of that grace and help us to show grace in our uh, relating to others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.